All right, we are back. I do note, uh, I would like to extend a welcome to any of my traveling companions who, who may be listening, and I think some will be. And they were an interesting bunch. I think we had no less than four electrical engineers, which made a visit to the solar energy farm, such <laughs> that was in uh, the Moremi Crossing in the Okavango Delta. Much more interesting. We've talked in this program about how it is that uh, solar is going to create a problem in the end because the cells don't last forever. It was pointed out to me that, well, the silicon itself does last forever. The problem comes from the superstructure around the silicon and the little wires and such that connect them. Well, those are what expand and contract and eventually go bad. But when people asked what, what it was uh, I did for a living, my first comment was, I was a doctor, which caused one of the cohorts to ask, well, aren't you still? Which I added, well, yes, I am. I'm retired, but I do keep myself busy with a radio show. Elise revealed that she was a geologist, which made our trip to the, uh, the gold mine something was, was like candy for her. Turns out, by the way, that when I was there in 1990, you could go down into the gold mine. Uh, there were, I forget how many levels there were, many, many levels, uh, maybe 15, 18, something like that. Back then, you could go down to one of the, uh, the mid-range levels, maybe, let's just say nine. I don't remember the exact number, but you can't do that anymore because they've stopped pumping the water out of the mine, and it's all flooded, which is what happens when you're down deep in the earth. Back in the day, at the level we were able to achieve, you did note that the temperature around you was increasing. In fact, they had to pump refrigerated air deep down into that mine to keep people comfortable because... At that point, it starts getting hot from the interior heat of planet Earth, which is pretty amazing if you think about it, and does raise the question of why it is we don't pump liquids down into the Earth and have it naturally heated by the planet itself. And not being an electrical engineer or an engineer of any kind, I don't have, I don't have an answer for that. It's one of those things people talk about and just never seem to really fulfill. Anyway, a little bit more about the trip. I had meant to spend two nights in Dubai. I wound up spending five. Because of the technical problems getting to the Seychelles, we had to find a workaround. And because Elise was flying from Kenya to the Seychelles, in theory, I just said, no, you got to come to Dubai. We got to figure out what to do here. She texted me and said, I fear if I do that, you won't go to Africa. And I have to admit, that was pretty perceptive on her part. But once we pooled our resources included her greater technical ability than myself, we were able to find an alternate pathway to get to the next stop, which was Mauritius. I need to gripe a little bit about how that went down. As I say, in the old days, you went to a travel agent and you said, I need to do this. Let's do it. These days, you you go to the concierge at the, I don't know, I guess it's a five-star hotel. It was a nice hotel. And you ask, what do you have in the way of uh, travel agents? And they say, no, we don't have anything. We can give you a day tour of the town if you want it. So we went online because we were forced to. We contacted one travel agency that said, oh, yes, we're in the hotel. To which I said, great, let's meet up and get this done. And they said, no, no, we do this over the phone. Which was asking, what do you mean you're in the hotel? You're no more in the hotel than a guy in Oakland. Well, they probably were in a hotel. Yeah, maybe, yeah. Not your hotel. No, they were not in my hotel, so we fired them. 
Then again, online, we found another travel agency nearby, went out into the 104-degree heat. It was nice to see the real part of town. So much of, of Dubai is this, this giant mega construction, which is part Disneyland, part Vegas, part Wall Street, part Muslim Brotherhood, part Aramco, part hell. That it was nice to see, you know, the real part of town. But when we got to the travel agency in the real part of town and we're trying to book the ticket, I actually handed the man my credit card and he said, oh, is this a UAE credit card? I said, no, it's a USA credit card. He said, no, no, we can't process it. We can do it with cash. If you can go to a bank and withdraw like a couple thousand dollars and come on back, then we can do this. And I'm thinking, yeah, it's, it's probably a low crime rate in Dubai. But walking down the street with thousands of dollars in cash I withdrawn from a bank just didn't seem wise. So we found ourselves back at the Dubai Mall, where they did have a high-end travel agency, which did take credit cards that were based in the United States. And we were able to successfully get the hell out of Dubai. I think I'm obliged to say a word or two about the island of Mauritius, which is lovely. It's reminiscent of Hawaii with, you know, volcanic crags and lots of greenery, pleasant temperatures. But I do want to say it was not a high point to have finally gotten there later in the evening than we would have normally to arrive at night. The weather's a bit rainy. We had all kinds of trouble securing a rental car, which I'm not going to go into, but... When we finally did get it all resolved and we walked out of the car, I realized, oh, they drive on the left here. I should have known that. They were a former British colony. And what happened next, I'll save for a future program. Anyway, fast forward to the tour. I'd never been on a tour before. As our, uh, our guide showed up to collect the, the 18 of us that were going to do this for the next 11 days, he asked how many tours people had been on. The numbers ranged from 2 to 13. Except in my case, I said, I am a tour virgin. But now having enjoyed the benefits of such a tour, I, I, think that I, I think I can recommend them and suggest that it's sometimes a very good way to go. I would say it's definitely a very good way to go when you've been stuck in internet and cell phone hell for a while, which is quite independent of the city-state of Dubai. At any rate, this particular tour took us from the city of Johannesburg up to Zambia. Zambia and Zimbabwe share the spectacular Victoria Falls, which I was fortunate to visit back in 1988. At that point, Robert Mugabe had been in power for eight years and had not yet trashed the economy of his country. Although Zambia has a, a side of the falls that, that's quite respectable and quite, quite interesting, the really cool visuals come on the Zimbabwe side. So even though Zimbabwe is currently an economic basket case with the same regime. The Mugabe regime is still in charge, even though Mugabe himself was deposed years ago. His right-hand man is the current strongman criminal running the country. By the way, I should stress that that opinion is my own and not necessarily that of, of anyone else that might be furthering this broadcast. But uh, our guide, pointed out the realities of, of Zimbabwe to everybody, most of which, which I knew. But I was struck at how well he explained it. You know, that just because you own a farm, for example, you're not necessarily a farmer. The Mugabe regime, to its great discredit, decided at one point that the farms, which admittedly the best farmland was commandeered by the white people that came to Zimbabwe centuries ago. Nevertheless, they were running the farms well, 
Zimbabwe was the breadbasket of Southern Africa, and farm produce generated huge sums of money. Well, Mugabe decided that, you know, he would just turn these farms over, which after all were run by white people and thus usurpers, over to his cronies. Although one could certainly argue that the white people in Zimbabwe were not truly natives, the fact of the matter is some of them had been there for three centuries, which is a lot longer than a lot of people have been in America, family-wise, who nevertheless consider themselves to be good, solid Americans. A lot of the folks that consider themselves to be good, solid Zimbabweans found themselves out of luck. And of course, agricultural production then cratered. A lot of sad, forlorn guys, when you're making your brief foray into Zimbabwe, which we did, we had to, in the space of, you know, a morning, exit Zambia, enter Zimbabwe, and then exit Zimbabwe and re-enter Zambia, which ate up probably, in the grand scheme of things, almost as much time as we spent walking along the spectacle of the waterfall. But these poor guys, I mean, the unemployment rate in the country is 80 or 90 percent. It's, it's way up there. These poor guys were trying to hawk Zimbabwe dollars as a souvenir because you can buy a $50 billion bill for a buck, which one of my fellow tour people did. He could have bought a trillion dollar bill, but didn't want to be extravagant. I give Jim a lot of credit for that. Anyway, in my travels, I would note that the people of Zimbabwe are as nice as any people anywhere. And I've been saddened to note what they've had to endure politically for the last many decades. We've talked about this in the show many, many times. I imagine some listeners are wondering why it is we keep griping about Zimbabwe. But the reason, I would say, was that it was such a lovely country that has such potential, that still has such potential, that's being ruined by a bad government, which I think is one reason why we spend so much time in this program griping about the possibilities of really bad government right here at home. We've seen what it can do. One of the pieces of advice uh, our guide gave us as we commenced the trip was to just not talk politics, which was, which was good, solid advice. Donald Trump's name did come up from time to time. A few of the folks, myself prominent among them, could not resist taking a few swipes at him. But I strongly suspect that some of my fellow travelers were just not all that down on the Donald and, and, and that meant, you know, we're having a great time. We like each other's company. These are good, solid folks. Let's not, let's not go down that road of griping about politics and fighting over it. That, that's stupid. You'll be pleased to note that I actually restrained myself. When one of my companions, when one of our companions, who was a very delightful lady, was asking about Biden, well, what's he done? I resisted, jumping in with, well, so far he's completely failed to try and overthrow the United States government. But I resisted, and we all continued to get along swimmingly. Our fellow tour group folks had some remarkable tales to tell about uh, things they'd done and things their children had done. One described how it was that their daughter was fearful of getting out of China during the COVID crisis because of the lockdowns the Chinese government was putting in place. And I think I need to hybridize uh, travel tales with current events, as proposed at the top of the show at this point. And note that according to The Week magazine... China's policies continue to generate fear in the populace over what happens if somebody tests positive for COVID. Apparently, an IKEA in Shanghai went into sudden COVID lockdown, and what the magazine describes as last week, probably about August 18th, I'm guessing, sending shoppers shoving past staff to get to the exits and avoid being sent into mandatory quarantines. 
pretty remarkable photo accompanied this piece showing showing a couple dozen guys pushing and shoving at the exits to blow their way past the security people. Peace notes that the lockdown was announced after authorities learned that several close contacts of a six-year-old boy who had just tested positive were inside the store. Viral videos showed guards closing the doors before the crowd forced them open to escape the premises. And yes, they do note that under China's strict zero-COVID policy, Shanghai regularly orders flash lockdowns of areas where positive cases are detected, including stores, offices, gyms, and restaurants. The entire city of 20 million endured a two-month lockdown earlier this year, during which angry residents yelled repeatedly from their windows. Our guide frequently talked about how it was that in Africa, various regimes might resort to financial chicanery, like preventing you from getting access to your own money. Curiously, a Lebanese man got arrested in mid-August after he held a bank staff hostage in his desperate attempt to access the money in his own bank account. Bassam al-Sheikh Hussein entered a Beirut bank branch with a shotgun and gas canister, then locked himself in with six hostages and demanded to withdraw $200,000 of his own money so he could pay for his father's hospital treatment. After hours of negotiations, he accepted an offer to withdraw just part of his savings. He surrendered and was arrested and got none of the money. Nice. Evidently, supportive protesters gathered outside the bank during the standoff, shouting, down with the rule of the banks. Lebanese populace was apparently extremely sympathetic to this man's desperate moves. A lot of people did ask me, you know, wasn't I afraid to go to Africa? Well, it's true that, you know, when I was in Joburg back in 1988, the Hillbrow area where I stayed was quite a nice place to visit. These days, you are sternly warned as a tourist to not go to Hillbrow unless you have a guide with you. Our cab driver was very solicitous in how he was going to drop us off at the hop-on, hop-off bus in Joburg, but he would come back to pick us up. The hop-on, hop-off did take us through Hillbrow, and I could see that that probably was uh, probably a smart move. We definitely liked it not to hop off there. By the way, among the many lamentations I would have about this trip is the fact that we did not allow enough time to visit the Apartheid Museum in Johannesburg, which was excellent. The story of South Africa is, is pretty well known, uh, you know, apartheid, white rule, brutality of, of, of the local populace. But the truth of the matter is there was a lot of brutality to go around and a lot of favoritism to go around. The original population of South Africa, as of a millennia, or maybe a millennium and a half ago, was that of the San people, invaders of taller, larger, darker-colored immigrants from the northern part of Africa then spread south and enslaved the San people. And or pushed them into, you know, marginal areas to survive, like the desert. There's so much that could be said about what happened in South Africa and elsewhere. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it wasn't like it was different here. Native American population and well, everywhere. I'm just thinking of California and the, the mission that's near my house and what happened to the local Ohlone Indians when the Spaniards and gold fever infected people from around the world showed up. And we got a look at that at the end of the trip, too, visiting Istanbul and the number of invaders that came and went and conquered and subjugated peoples. It's just, it's such a sad part of human history. I think I'm bogging down in the bad stuff. Let, let's talk about elephants. 
on my wish list of things to do since I last visited Africa, and, and, I, and I cannot resist mentioning yet again on this show that the last time I was in South Africa, there was talk of Mandela getting out. He was still in prison at that point. And as it would turn out, between the time I got on the plane in Joburg and arrived at my parents' house in the East Bay, they let Mandela out. Yeah, that was a big awe. Would have loved to have been there when that happened. When, uh, when Nelson Mandela passed in 2013, we did an hour-long program dedicated to his uh, saving the country from the bloodbath that could have ensued. Our guide mentioned that he was a young man, a teenager, standing there in the public square as Mandela addressed the crowd. And it's pretty undeniable that somebody else besides Nelson Mandela might have caused for retribution against the people that had, had imprisoned him for so long. And had he done so, it would have been a bloodbath. He took quite the opposite viewpoint and said we must bring this country together and work for its future. And thank God they had him. That's all I got to say. Anyway, after our trip up to Victoria Falls, the, uh, the crew bust into Botswana. Now, if you look on the world map, it appears that four countries come together. And it's true, because the Germans, which controlled Namibia, I think at the time of Bismarck, decided that it might be possible to pick up a river, the Zambezi, and take it east to the Indian Ocean. So they extended a thumb of territory out along the Chobe River to where it meets the Zambezi and thought, well, great, this will allow us to get to the Indian Ocean. Didn't work out so well. And it turns out that where Zambia and Zimbabwe meet along the Zambezi, if you extend that west, you'll meet Namibia and Botswana. But I've looked at very large maps of this and Google Earthed it, and I'm quite sure there is no spot of dry land where you can stand on four countries. I think... You could swim out to a point where the Chobe meets the Zambezi and say, yeah, I'm actually in four countries at the same time. Although Mr. McGillan is, is probably surprised that I didn't attempt such a stunt. I can only say that having examined the sheer volume of elephant and hippo poop in the Chobe River, that alone would keep me from trying it. Now, there is a point. There's a thing called the Devil's Pool in Victoria Falls, where you can take a land bridge and several boats and get out to an island that has a pool in it where you can bathe and overlook the 300-foot fall of water adjacent to you. We could see people doing exactly that from the Zimbabwe side. But again, examining the quality of the water, I would think that was really not such a good idea. But the Chobe River itself, oh, my God, we took a, a boat cruise up on it and several rides in the large modified Jeep-like vehicles that were provided to us. And it was literally thousands of elephants. I mean, some of them were herds out on the horizon, a distant piece away, but oh my God, it was so reassuring after hearing about the dire straits of uh, the elephant population in Africa to see that at least in some places they're doing okay. And uh, a trip like this really reminds us what a dog-eat-dog world it is out there, the world of biology. While driving along in the, in the Jeeps, we, uh, we spotted what was left of a Cape buffalo. It had been killed about a month before. What was left at this point was the horns. Every other part of the beast had been eaten and or scavenged. Anyway, I would add that if you like looking at 
pachyderms out in the wild. And no, the term does not refer to hippos. It means elephants and rhinos. Referring, I think, to the nature of their wrinkled skin. I would say you should save your money and plan a trip to Botswana. It isn't your average everyday um, tour to get from the Chobe River, which is the north of the country, to the Okavango Delta, which is more southerly. We got on little airplanes. One medium-sized airplane, but some other six-seaters. My fellow tourists did indulge me in, in giving me the front seat, the co-pilot seat, being that I do have a pilot's license. I think it was John, one of my one of my fellow uh, uh, tour people, that said, "Well, it adds a certain level of redundancy." And yeah, it, it would have. I, I I probably could have got the thing down, but I do have to say that the gal who who got us from uh, the larger airport to the smaller airport at Morami Crossing stuck the landing. She did great. I'm looking down, thinking, "Oh, I think she's coming in a little bit hot," but no, she wasn't. Bam! Put it down. When we got out of the plane and walked over to the lodge, which was beautifully constructed with, uh, with local timbers and thatched roofs, etc., I got there, looked around at elephants out in the river pulling up plants and eating, and just the stunning spectacle that this made. I turned to the hotel staff and asked, have I died and gone to heaven? Which they thought was amusing. Another lamentation was, the dark skies that presented themselves to us and how it would have been really cool to have gone out and and looked at the astronomy of the southern hemisphere and just how stunning the stars and planets were, but uh, we were too tired. It never happened, and I'm, I'm sorry about that. As we were coming back to the, uh, the facilities in the evening, I was saying, boy, we need to go look at these stars. And one of the Jeep drivers said, are you an astronomer? To which I said, I'm a fake astronomer. <laughs> And to his credit, he came up with a beautiful laser pointer, which would have been great to have used, but again, didn't happen. You can't do everything. I am a bit sorry to have let my fellow travelers down on that one. I think a good time would have been had by all. Then again, I should note that there was a, a hyena warning, which had been seen uh, <laughs> coming, passing through the facilities. Is that a first for you? Yeah, hyena warning, that was a first. And they do have to, on a regular basis, shoo the elephants away. The path out to our tents did, at one point, feature an elephant. And no matter how you slice it, you don't want to mess with an elephant. One truly magical part of this visit out to the Okavango Delta was that we were put in little dugout canoe-like boats. Well, they originally were dugout canoe-like boats, and now they're made of fiberglass. But they're true to the design of the dugout. We, uh... Did take a little trip out on the, uh, the river, which is quite shallow, to the point where you can't really use, well, they don't use oars because there's so much um, grass poking up through the river that you basically, you know, like a, like a gondolier in Venice, you get pulled along. I, I realized to my horror as we went out to do this that I had neglected to bring along any bug repellent. But like manna from heaven, we had dragonflies in huge quantities that were, I, I think, zipping above us and eating all the things that were trying to eat us. It was a very cool moment. Mr. McMillan tells me I got about three minutes left. I guess I should thank uh, my fellow tour people from some of what uh, they educated me about. Looking at the Week magazine and a picture of Willie Nelson and, and how it is that Willie was lamenting the fact that he just isn't getting out on tour enough, I was struck by the fact that uh, I was clued in 
that Willie Nelson actually spends an awful lot of his time in Hawaii, or at least his family does. Yes, it's true, he apparently has a 700-acre ranch in Spicewood, Texas, but <laughs> if you had a choice between Spicewood, Texas, and Hawaii, where would you hang out? And that's, I think, what his family does quite a bit. Mr. Millen is fond of quoting uh, General U.S. Grant, who once said that, that if he owned hell and he owned Texas, he'd live in hell and he'd rent out Texas. And while this summarizes perfectly my feelings of Dubai, I was struck by the article about Willie confirmed what I was told, that he just loves to go out on tour and, you know, doesn't want to be stuck in any one spot, even if it is Hawaii. You may be surprised to note that Willie Nelson no longer smokes marijuana. Apparently he smoked so much that his lungs got damaged. So he has switched to edibles. Anyway, a lot of folks were concerned about the possibility, the dangers of going to Africa. But while I was there, I was unaware of any school shootings taking place anywhere on the African continent. And yeah, looking at the Week magazine, there were some pieces while I was gone about uh, the brutality of the townships near Johannesburg. Apparently, armed gangs now control these townships. I did get a first-hand report about someone who lived in Joburg when I was in Mauritius. That'll have to be talked about it another day. And without a doubt, there are bad areas in South Africa and everywhere you want to go. But then again, I want to close by looking at the last word section of the week magazine, the August 19th edition, which was about how you can train teachers, at least some people like to do this, to shoot back when schools are under siege. The subheadline of the piece asked, will arming teachers make schools safer? And I feel I can... I can answer that one. No, no, they will not. And yet, I live in a country where a significant number of people actually propose that this is a solution to the crazy situation of school shootings. I also live in a country where one of the major political parties denies that global warming is actually taking place. Are there many other gangs slash political parties around the world that make that claim? I, I don't think so. And like the tour of Africa, we've managed to, to, to pretty much avoid talking about Donald J. Trump, which is quite a change for this program. But to, if you're sorry to hear that, well, I'm, I promise you, we'll make up for it in the future. Like I said, this program was bound to be a little more loosely wrapped than usual, but, but as Walter Cronkite might have said, that's the way it is. This show was produced by Edward McMillan, who apparently is keen to go somewhere where he too can experience a hyena warning. The fact is, you should too, dear listener. I'm Douglas Everett. This is Radio Parallax. We'll probably relate next time how it is I brought back a bottle of Cruxland gin, which is infused with Kalahari truffles. I have to admit, I'd never had a gin and tonic infused with Kalahari truffles, but now I'm a better person on account of it. And uh, final thanks, above all else, to uh, Elise Wilmoth, who suggested going to Africa. I'm glad I did. Let's go a little Willie Nelson, shall we? Mississippi Delta was shining like a national guitar. I am following the river down the highway through the cradle of the Civil War. I'm going to Graceland, Graceland in Memphis, Tennessee. I'm going to Graceland, 